Welcome to On The Line. I'm Jenny Robb. And um, if you're tuning back in, we are continuing our series with Frank Giampaolo as we go through his book, uh, The Psychology of Tennis Parenting. Um, he, of course, is the author and author of many other books. Um, the Tennis Parents Bible is, is a great one uh, just off the top of my head there. But um, he's also exciting news coming out with a set very soon um, of what what we're sort of calling or he's sort of calling uh the the tennis um encyclopedia and it's gonna be a set of books that you can buy in a bundle and um we're super excited uh about bringing that to you and so that is coming soon you heard it first here <laughs> uh frank um is of course a a worldwide industry leader and um has worked with everyone from top players to high school players um and and his insights are invaluable. So welcome back, Frank. Glad to have you as always. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Um, so we are diving into chapter eight. Um, the title of the chapter is Change Equals Improvement. And the quote is everything measurable can be improved. Um, so describe for us how you got to this chapter. <laughs> Well, we're, as we're going deeper into this book, I think it's um, this is going to be one of those meaningful chapters that actually spurs the growth that you as parents need, but also the athletes need. And and we'll talk a little bit about why doing things like, you know, quantifying the data and why maybe doing things like charting or stats or even match play video analysis will help uh will help your athletes. And uh, look, I think it's important to know when we start, there's a really big difference between players that want to be normal kids and then players that want to be top college athletes. Mm -hmm. And it's two very different pathways. Neither one of them is right or wrong. That's right. You know, but I think if the, if your child has a desire to play college ball or beyond, we have to make sure that they have the correct developmental plan in place. So it's not just a dream that they never really achieve. So yes, we need, you need the plan. Parents need the plan. That's so right. There we go. Parents need the plan. Um, yes. our, our first section, um, and this one really, uh, uh, rung home for me. Um, and, it's avoidance versus exposure. Um, yeah. You write, although avoidance can lead to temporary relief from anxiety, the avoidance approach typically creates deeper fear in the future. By putting off solutions, athletes unknowingly multiply their anxiety about the topic. And I think this is a huge deal because I do think that the avoidance part is so common um so tell us a little bit more about avoidance what would a player be doing what would that look like if 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 they're following this avoidance uh idea well i think if um when we talk about avoidance versus exposure there's there's flaws and benefits in each side of that topic really but um you know, if they have too much exposure to things like poor choices and poor habits, 
that's going to derail them way more than the excuses most junior athletes make when they really do lose a match. You know, they start to say things like the opponent cheated or it was too windy or right. I couldn't prepare because I had to get my nails done, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So really it, it kind of, it, it goes down to the inside levels of the athlete and looking deep inside and say, well, what, what poor choices, what poor habits, you know, can I actually change to get the results I'm capable of getting? And, and then exposure, of course, what we want to do is try to have the athletes customize it. But if they don't like playing pushers or retrievers in tournaments, it's wise to, to get exposure to that exact stimuli, right? In practice sessions. That's so right. they have to go with, yeah. So instead of like rallying back and forth in the academy, grooving your normal strokes that's not going to ever help beating a pusher they have to practice the patterns to disrupt that style like short angle return of serves which pulls the opponent to the side fence and opens up the court or or being able to do things like drop shots and passing shots and lobs and swing volleys when the opponent's vulnerable and they and they throw up that moon ball going in five steps instead of backing up five steps and and, you know, when you see your athlete, when they back up and start playing the moon ball game with the moon baller, whose game are they playing, right? They, they just aborted their real style usually, and now they're playing the opponent's style, which is probably disastrous. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think avoidance versus exposure is a question you can ask your child almost, almost every day. Do you need more avoidance or more exposure to that? Mm-hmm. And, and we're really, I felt like as I was reading this chapter, we're really like you, you mentioned a moment ago, we're really getting deeper into it. Uh, mm. I mean, this chapter kind of really brought it, like I said, brought it home to me that, you know, we're, we're taking it, um, to a, a higher plane, you know, as far as, um, yeah. It, intelligence on the court and self-awareness and these things that we've spoken about before all leading up to these things um, in each chapter uh, you go on to say in this section that exposure strategies are more proactive they lead to a way out of the drama while minimizing stress in the future and I just again I think that is so important when you're giving this idea of exposure versus avoidance um and 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 i think you have to kind of change your thinking a little bit you know open your mind a little bit to go okay avoidance versus exposure what does that really really mean and so i think you know you do a great job when we get to the solution part of this section um, you say it start start the conversation by acknowledging that you feel anxious about a particular topic and then ask them being the athlete um, about their true feelings towards the issue and let them know that you want to support them and enjoy your time together through their tennis journey. And, you know, I just think that this is such an important um, tenet for the parents to really take hold of um so let's talk a little bit more about that conversation um acknowledging what you feel anxious about and wanting the child giving the child the freedom to speak freely in a way not just say what the parent wants to hear um, right. 
you know, so, so true feelings. I like that, you know, I like to, those pick up words that, that uh, to me mean so much when you say they're true feelings um, towards that issue and then let them know you want to support them and enjoy your time together through the journey. And I just, um, I just think that's, that's beautiful. And, and it's such an opportunity that many parents may be missing right now or have, or missed with their young athletes. And so, I love that you're you're putting this out there as 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 like another part of this guide for parents going this this is really important stuff you know the true feelings about a topic really yeah. getting down to the nitty gritty of what makes you anxious you know identifying what it is that that is the drama as you would say what what is instigating that drama and let's let's sort of dive into that a little bit that's a parent-child conversation that a child might remember their whole life (laughs) yeah you know I mean it, it, it is truly this is one of those life affecting you know moments if you really you know get the gravity of this um so so yeah so let's dive in also into what that conversation might look like between a parent and a child um as the solution to avoidance versus exposure well look it's important that we all you know as parents and coaches we all understand that with sports we're trying to use sports to open up communication which is a life skill and it teaches life skills. We're already exposed as poor life skills. So once you get into this conversation, you'll probably you'll probably see that with most young athletes, teenagers, that communicating their true feelings is pretty difficult. They're not used to it. They're just used to they're used to texting people and texting friends and that kind of thing. Emojis. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. I love emojis too, you know, but <laughs> I know. But yeah, so now you're going to teach your your child how to communicate, how to be vulnerable, what is the ego, and how maybe an overinflated ego or underinflated ego might affect their their habits, or even how they see things like fear in a match. They're scared. I'm scared to lose. I'm scared to miss. That type of thing. But um, and that can I be a some- difficult thing to admit. For a it young is. player to admit to themselves and then to say that out loud to their parent, you know, th- we've spoken before about that, the courage that it takes to be vulnerable. And when you're asking a child about these issues, it goes right back to what we were talking about in the previous chapter, chapters um, about that willingness to be vulnerable and to say it out loud and that's a pretty big deal for these young athletes to i think so i think and it starts with modeling right like the 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 parents being able to be vulnerable and and express themselves kids are going to learn just by watching that and uh but if we are teaching our athletes maybe exposure exposure to fear and fear is big right a lot of times people when they're playing tournaments and i'm talking about adults too but we have a hard time closing out matches because we're, we're we're afraid to miss so we right. we revert back to push mode right and but Safety. <laughs> yeah if we can explain to the kids that they have to kind of pretend like they're a fireman and their their job under pressure 
is to run towards the fire, not run away from it. Mm-hmm. And they're and look when they run in, when they run in and actually play their game and trust their shots, it's important that they know they're gonna miss some on their way to winning the whole match. Mm-hmm. But if they abort their their normal style of play and start to push to be safe, now they're probably gonna blow it, which which happens more often than not. Oh, yes, yes, it does. Um, you go on to say, uh, remind them that it's no accident that unshakable athletes are the way they are. It's not by chance, it's but by choice. Um, so I, I love this idea because I think that we've all run across those people that just seem almost like machines. It's like, <laughs> you know, they, they yeah. you know, it, you know, I think of Djokovic, of course, is would be the easy one. Uh, you know, he is mentally, aside from just the the physical being that he is, uh, his mental toughness is is up there, if not the best, one definitely one of the best. Um, so that, I digress, but. I loved, I enjoyed watching the, the finals, um, yeah. Wimbledon where, uh, he, he was still so mentally tough, but you have the younger player, you have Alcaraz coming up and we'll get into this later in the chapter, but you know, there has to be inner belief. There has to be, you know, a time to step up and you have to, like you're saying from modeling and uh, the idea of dress rehearsals. And here you are on the biggest stage of your career, possibly to that point. And you're playing one of the most mentally tough, physically sound players. And, you know, so there's certainly, an if, if he had not prepared, <laughs> for for those small dramas or you know you're up against one of the most unshakable uh athletes yeah. out there in the world <laughs> um so but you say it's it's not by chance it's by choice um so let's talk a little bit more about that choice well that the choice i think is to understand in this situation that everybody has fear so now the choice is how do you choose to deal with the fear, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in like basic psychology, people talk about you either fight, you stand and fight like a Djokovic, you freeze, which is more of a panic mode, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, or or flight, which is more of a tanking. You'll see it in tennis that sometimes they're they stay on the court, but emotionally they they stop playing three games ago. That's right. They've checked out. They they've, already, they've decided they've already made a choice they've yes. made a choice that they're not going to win this match yes. and so like you said you know in an extreme form it's tanking where it doesn't even look like they're trying you know or you can stay out there I mean I, I, I remember um it was Nadal and Vavrinka, and Nadal had gotten hurt and he didn't want to concede the match because mm. he was being respectful of the opponent. He wanted Stan Wawrinka to to go ahead and win the match. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and it was one of the most interesting, and we, we've talked about momentum shifts in, in previous chapters as well, to 
see, it's almost like Nadal was, you know, like put me out of my misery, <laughs> step up, win this thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Wawrinka kind of froze up for a while and Nadal went on to win the next set. <laughs> and you're, and you can see him out there like suffering and he's like, please, <laughs> it was just <laughs> off, you know, but the competitive fire within him yeah, he's still going to compete, even though he knows he's, you know, physically having having this problem. But he's again the the respect of, you know, I want you to go ahead and win it. I'm not going to stop the match. And so Vavrinka had to kind of overcome, maybe seeing that Nadal is now hurt, and yet he loses the next set. He does go on to win the match. But it's like that was one of the most fascinating matches to watch as far as momentum shifts. And, you know, like I said, I could I could sort of see it all suffering out there like like, please, <laughs> please, please yeah. go on <laughs> and, and well, see it. it took him a minute. He had to overcome some of that drama like yeah. you're talking about the drama of here's one of the best players in the world. We're in the finals. And I can't remember if it was U.S. Open or I can't remember which major it was, but um, it was not the French. <laughs> I don't, yeah. It wasn't the French, but um, it, it just to see to see that match, it just that that came to mind with this idea of of like you're saying the choices that you make and how those choices become the actions and it means committing it, it had that inner belief um that you can um and we'll get to this here in just a moment but you specifically say uh, i'm paraphrasing but uh you know if you believe you can or you can't you're probably right like <laughs> you know yeah so that's that an old belief. quote that's a good quote i, I love that one um but Look, I think from the parent side, things like like Jenny, you talk about competitive fire in an athlete. Sometimes those are um, natural inborn tendencies. Sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. Either way, though, it's a learned skill, right? You can yeah. learn that. You can learn how to manage the competitiveness. Like even in between points, if you're looking at a parent, if you're, if you're thinking about what can I do to help my junior athlete be more competitive it would be have them understand that in between points they they have to feel the feelings and they're it's okay to be angry that's right i mean obviously not overly crazy but it's okay to be angry and then they have to be able to stand still and calmly reset and get their whole mind to shift and it is a mind shift but they have to shift their mind to the the next point and get over the drama and that's what the top players can do. You'll see even like the, the Djokovic's and such, they'll they'll get so mad they'll break a racket. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then they don't keep playing like kids do. They stop, right. they calm down, they reset before they start playing again. And so anyway, yeah, that's why I think it's something that we can teach. And it is part of avoidance or exposure. And I think it's important that with parents that teach exposure every day all the time anything that your child does not feel like they can do or they don't want to do mm -hmm. it's a battle it's easier to do it for them but when you do it for them they're not learning how to problem solve 
So and that's what they need in matches, really. Yeah, that's really getting to the heart of the matter. Um, so the the final part of the solution of, of this section of the chapter, you say nudge them in the direction that the most crucial component to control in the world of competition isn't the drama, it's their reaction to the drama. And that goes to what you were just saying about, you know, that same match that I was just talking about with Djokovic and Alcaraz mm -hmm. at, at Wimbledon, at one point, you know, Djokovic absolutely obliterates <laughs> a racket. <laughs> and, but then, but then it's like, you can't deny your feelings. You're going to, you're going to feel. Yeah. yeah. To feel. And so I love that you said, you know, if you're mad or, or whatever that feeling is, you know, don't deny that you're feeling it. Yes. You can't, there's nothing to work with there. But if you go, okay, I'm mad. I'm going to be mad. It's okay to be mad. It's a, 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 a human emotion. Yes. But the difference between the good players and the great players or a difference between the good and the great is how quickly they move on. So again, that response. Response. So, so the choice. Yes, the choice. And so feeling the feeling and identifying that feeling and then the freedom to feel it and know that you're validated for feeling it. You know, you can't be like, don't be so mad. You know, it's like, that's not work. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, be mad. You're mad. Sure. But how quickly can you let it go in the moment? And that's a choice. Yeah. And um, we're going to move on. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So the final part of that is then bring to light the reoccurring drama in your athletes matches and devise those customized solutions. And so that goes back to the conversation that we were talking about yeah. between the, the athlete and the parent. And so after you've gone through this process of the feeling, not denying the feeling, feel it, you know, then let go of it. And then taking that deeper, you go, what caused the feeling? You know, the feeling is the symptom of something deeper. Why did you feel the feeling? And you're validated in your feeling. Um, and so the, the fact that you say then bring to light the reoccurring drama in your athletes matches and devise those customized solutions. So what is it? What is this a recurring theme? And this is a, a big ask of the parents really yeah. to go, okay, this is something that I've seen, as you say, like as the weekend coach, as, as the, the parent in a coaching role traveling to these tournaments you know, it requires a little bit more thought and reflection on the parents' side to go, okay, I keep seeing this. I keep seeing yeah, this does. happen. And so then the need to address it. And again, that takes a lot of courage on the parent side. It does. And, you know, a lot of parents really don't feel like uh, open communication with themselves and their teenagers work. And, and there is a lot of studies that talk about why these um, interfamily relationships are way more difficult. And so nowadays, remember that most top players have mental coaches, not just coaches that feed balls out of the basket. Mm -hmm. And you can do that 
you know, obviously in person, or you can do it on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And there's coaches all over the country that do these type of uh, mental coaching sessions. So don't feel like if you can't do it or if you don't know enough about tennis and you're worried about that, um, then bring a mental coach into your entourage. You know, the players like, you know, like, like the Djokovic's like you talk about, they spend a lot of time on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. you know, anyway. I think it it, it takes, now I, I want to speak kind of directly to the parents watching this right now and, 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 or listening from wherever you are, um, that we know that even by going there with your athlete, it, it, you're being vulnerable to a point too. And so it takes courage for the, the, the parent who maybe, you know, you and your child, oh, you go this and you go that, but to really speak on that level to your child especially when we're talking about youth um not just you know if you're eight if you're 18 same thing you know the the vulnerability it takes of the parent to go okay i'm seeing this happen in your matches and i'm not starting this conversation with that to you know make you feel bad i'm i'm saying that i see this and let's talk about it and then again the word support you, you know, you want to support in this, let's work through this together on the journey and enjoy it. And so it's such a, a magnanimous statement to give them the freedom to again, speak freely and the validation of the emotion. And let's talk about what's creating that drama and know that the child isn't going to be ridiculed or criticized that we just want to identify the problem and then let's work together and then the coach is involved in this as well you go on to say that in the the next few sections that now we're going to work together but by being open and saying well actually it's it's this and so now now admitting it to myself and then admitting it to my parent and then admitting it to a coach. There's so much vulnerability there, but then having that safety of my parent is going to support me and enjoy this process. And my coach is also going to support me. You know, that is a really, really big deal. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, that's why it's not a super easy journey. That's why I think parents need, a little bit of help, which we all do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I surely did when I went through the, you know, the whole cycle of being a tennis parent and, and it's not easy. So yeah, I, I, hopefully these, these kind of books will, will help a little bit. Um, we move on to the next section in chapter eight. Um, and again, I, I, I just I love the title of this this section where you say competitive pressure triggers and it fits mm-hmm. right into what we were just saying. Um, you, you say competitive pressure triggers are some of the most common stressors found in junior tennis. Guiding athletes to step beyond stroke mechanics allows them to look into the face of their match time anxieties. Identifying your athletes stressors starts here. 
And so in those couple of sentences, I feel like it's like a universe <laughs> of, of ideas in there. Um, so, so one of my favorite sentences in this chapter, and this is from the, the coaching hat that, that I would put on for a second is, you know, guiding athletes to step beyond stroke mechanics allows them to look into the face of their match time anxieties. And I just love that because I know that, so often, um, you know, it's, it's how to hit a forehand, you know, how, what's your grip, what, what, what's your stance? What, when do you go open stance before, you know, when do you move forward? Yeah. What, what are you driving it? Are you, you know, hitting a defense, all those things, which are all obviously important and valid. Um, that a deeper level is, you know, like you say, step beyond stroke mechanics, and that allows them to look into the face of their match time anxieties. So it is such a deeper level. You know, I just can't emphasize that enough. You know, a player can come off and be like, gosh, my surf was just off today. You know, well, why? Why? You know, to, so to, to go beyond surface level of my strokes weren't working, um, why what happened <laughs> you know let's go there and it's hard to go there like I said it takes courage on uh, for the player definitely but also for the parent to open that line of communication which can be scary and then bringing in the coach and there's your dynamic and you know for the kid to know that they're in a safe place and the parent and the coach are in their corner they're for them not looking at them and just like wagging a finger, but all on the same page and we're for you. And that is so special and, and meaningful and goes beyond tennis. Like we talk about all the time. <laughs> yes. Well, and, Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say in this concept and this little part of the book, and then just little mini, you know, one page sections, but, there are certain pressured triggers and uh, some are really common. We see them all the time. Like the top 10 that are listed in the book, we see all the time, but um, athletes might only have one or maybe two of the 10, but if we know what they are, if we expose them, now we can work on them. So it goes back you know, to that we, word exposed. Yeah. Exposed. It does. It does, which is kind of part of the whole chapter, really. That Right. The exposure versus avoidance. If you yeah. have that conversation, just hoping it'll go away, yeah. it doesn't really work that like that. No. Um, Athletes so carry their baggage with them until you can you know, lighten the load and, and release it. Otherwise, they're going to carry all that drama. And it just gets heavier and heavier and more yeah. ingrained. You know, that's the yeah. other part, that if you're not identifying it, then it's just becoming more ingrained. You know, the, yeah. the longer you wait to make the change, to choose to make the change, the harder it will be. So avoiding, 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 it's actually snowballing, snowballing, snowballing. Sure is, the, huh? choice, the choice to make a change is only getting harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, that goes back to uh, choices and habits, right? Because mm -hmm. like, like you're talking about now, Poor habits, whether they're stroke mechanical, technical flaws, or they're mental or emotional habits, um, 
any of those habits, they need months to change. You have to, you're rerouting something that they're very loyal to because they've been doing it likely for years. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes an automatic negative response. They just go to the end of the match. It's kind of weird, but when they get into a match, you can see a beautiful, fun-loving kid morph into a, a different identity in a tournament. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now they're angry and they're fearful and they go back to that like clockwork. You know, if we don't step up and identify the triggers and, but also identify, are they internal stressors or external? Are they, are the, are the stressors caused by their own uh, ego and their own inner beliefs? Um, sometimes they're not reality. Like, you know, I want, I'm going to win this whole tournament, that kind of thing. Um <laughs> Or I'm going to play at UCLA when their their UTR is a six and, and theirs are all twelves, right? <laughs> or it could be external stressors like parents or coaches or friends, and social media is a really big source of external pressure That's, that I would. Yes, I yes. think that it's important that you don't allow your athletes to go on their phone on tournament weekends. Because mm -hmm. it, it serves no purpose to look at other people's UTRs and that adds to drama, problems. right? Drama, it, yeah. You know, and so so it, it's almost opening yourself up to those dramas that affect you. And so this, what you're saying, as far as you know, don't look it up. You know, we know it's hard to put the phone down, but that's yeah. a strategy. So that's a strategy. If you're identifying social media and or looking at, at looking up your ranking or somebody else's ranking or who lost to who, you know, what what are the seeds? What the seeds do, you know, in your draw and you're looking out, you know. So that would be. You know, identify, you know, if you're getting freaked out because you're looking these things up, let's not do that, number one. <laughs> but we understand that you're curious and it's it's like a moth to the flame. You want to know. We, we live in a, a world of, you know, instant uh, answers, instant knowledge. <laughs> yeah. And um, so that's hard. But even that, you know, we, what we just described, that's going, that would be an well easy for me to say but for the parent to go okay <laughs> we're gonna we're not gonna do that and we're gonna be but to have the solution of okay going into this tournament let's not do that so, yeah, so right on. which leads into what what you have in the solution part of, of this section you say after identifying the cause of your athlete's panic it's time to ask their coach to help plug in a customized solution Every topic that causes pressure needs more exposure. The problems lie in that most junior athletes avoid the difficulties they should be focusing on in hopes that they will go away. And that just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, mm. you know, yes, on the tennis court, but then, gosh, in life too. And so how... Mm so valuable i get so excited but it's so valuable for for the young players to learn these skills on if they're learning them on the tennis court and through tennis it's just another benefit for the rest of their life <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> so that hoping that something will go away it doesn't work <laughs> yeah and i think if um even if you 
if folks that are listening to this podcast, if they did grab a copy of this book and if they, they could sit with their athlete and just circle mm-hmm. the, the, you know, some of these topics that we'll talk about and, um, and really kind of break them down a little bit, but almost all of these topics are going to help them in their work environment when they get older. Like, for example, like even giving a presentation and being able to handle that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like a performance really, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. How they prepare. How you, prepare for that. <laughs> you know, yeah. how, uh, it, yes. Like we've talked about tone in, in the past that, you know, yeah. how you're going to come across, you know, whether it's a presentation or you're running for something at school, maybe student government or, you know, whatever the case may be, these. Yes. Such important topics. Um, so with along with the, this idea of the competitive pressure triggers, now that we've defined that um, the the list here and I'll go quickly, uh, there's 10. <laughs> um, so number one, scoring systems slash certain stages of the competition slash start times. And so even in just that one, I know that we could talk forever, but you know, <laughs> the first one scoring systems for me, you know, I, say there were rain delays and rain delays and rain delays and they need uh, the tournament director needs to get the tournament finished. And so they change the scoring format, you know, maybe they go to no ad scoring and then the athlete is going to be like, Oh, I hate no ad scoring oh my gosh, you know, well, what's the plan? What serve are you going to go to? Or what return are you going to go to? What are you going to do if you get to that that deuce point? Um, and you know that whoever wins that point wins the game. And so it becomes <laughs> incredibly important. Um, yes. So that's a competitive pressure trigger. That, that sure. very first one, I was like, yes, absolutely. And so like you used the word panic and I'm so glad you did. Cause I, I think that again, you know, I, I love words, but <laughs> that word panic resonated with me because I would panic on the court um, even in college and to have a plan to again, address the panic. Like why are you all of a sudden missing all your backhands in the net? It's not your backhand, you know, what what you're at you're at the the point that's no ad you're at the deuce point and what's your plan what's your serve what's your go-to if you don't have that default setting then yeah you're gonna panic because we panic when we don't know what to do and we feel like we're out of control yeah um in my mind anyway so that's just the first one (laughs) yeah no it's true and if i can add something to that uh first one it's meaningful, of course, that you talk to your athlete about any scoring systems, right, that they are uncomfortable with. But if it is a new a no ad, which we see a lot, we want our athletes to understand there's a big difference between a positive game point or a negative game point or one of these no ad neutrals. They have to have a plan on these mega points, these big points, right? Mm-hmm. They should be walking to the back fence, standing still. Yes actually even kind of monitoring their physical energy, mm-hmm. their mental tactical plan, like you're talking about their, their mm-hmm. emotional energy. Are they really ready to fight? And they, they should be doing this before they have a plan formulated and, and turn and walk back up to the baseline. Yeah. And so 
most of our kids, when they have a, a big point or a game point, they don't realize it until after it's done. Then they go, ah, oh, geez, that was a big point. And then I, I cream the, the return into the alley. And so, yeah, that's big. And, and the start times is, is, is important too. I'll give you an example. We were just working last week a lot with the California kids and they're all going to hard courts, which is one of the big, you know, big national titles. Right. And mm -hmm. sometimes they start at eight in the morning, which would be for California time, five in the morning for the kids going back to that's right Florida. So that means they have to, week before we're having them go to sleep here two or three hours earlier and waking up earlier. So we're having them wake up here in California at 4 a.m. The whole week before. So their body gets used to the idea that they're going to probably be playing a match at 5 a.m. And that's preparation. Mm -hmm. And these Absolutely. little things that that's what gets you past these early round matches. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Number two of the competitive pressure triggers. Um, and this one just makes me smile. <laughs> the opponent's style of play slash personality. Um mm. You know, I can't tell you uh, how many times, whether it's junior tennis or adults that I work with, that uh, will come report back to me about a, a match over the weekend or, or and say, they just, there was no pace on the ball. You know, that's not tennis. And I can't believe I lost that match. And, and we talk a little bit later in this chapter about losing to a lesser opponent or perceived lesser mm -hmm. opponent. Um, because it's different, but you know that this player that comes back and was just, it wasn't tennis. It wasn't tennis. <laughs> and as hard as hard as it is, you know, to be gentle, <laughs> I would say, well, you were on a tennis court, right? And you were, you know, playing points. <laughs> same court, same rules. You know, same everything. And they won. So it was tennis. <laughs> it it is tennis, yeah. right? <laughs> and so that's a situational thing. Whatever you know, that's just it is. It, it boils down to poor preparation because what they what they're really saying between the lines is when they say it's not tennis, it's, it it isn't the style of tennis that I get when I take clinics or play with right my friends, right? And obviously, if you're only hitting with the coach, if you're only hitting with a certain number of friends, you only see that same ball speed and spins trajectories. And, and so that's why you, we hear it a lot. I'm so good. You know, my kid's so good in practice, but so bad in matches. You know, it's that same topic, right? And yeah. because they're not practicing in that the dress rehearsal. Like, yeah, they're not doing dress rehearsals, right? So anyway, that's that one. You know, it, it's it's one quick side story. We mm. were both um, at the tennis congress. I can't remember exactly which year it was, and one of the athletes in my group, we were working on, uh, you know, a, a drill of moving forward. You know, attacking a short ball coming in. It was a doubles drill, um, and I don't usually feed a lot anyway. You know, I like the live ball action, but of course there are times to feed, and so I actually was feeding a short ball where they have to start behind the baseline and, and what are you going to do with it? And there was one player in the group that kind of stopped the drill for a moment and said, um, you know, your feet is too soft. I want you to feed it 
harder at me mm. you know, don't don't like nail it at me but but uh i don't <laughs> like this this the feet is too soft and it it took me a moment i had to kind of you know you're on the court in the moment and so so it's like okay again i'm reacting to now i'm having a reaction and how am i going to handle this and you know i want to say well you want me to feed the ball harder but is that the ball that you would attack in a match or are you going to get the softer short ball that's basically like your hand delivered invitation to the party at the net. <laughs> I am inviting you to come to the party at the net. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. so it, I'm doing the soft feed on purpose because that's your invitation. If I'm gonna hit the ball harder or faster or whatever that you're wanting me to feed you, it's you're kind of missing the point of the drill because <laughs> yeah, yeah. is, is that the ball that you would really attack if i'm going to hit it hard at you at the baseline yeah um, that's not the point of the drill anyway that that was an aside uh well, but we, we move on okay <laughs> 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 number one we, we talked about scoring systems number two talked about opponent style of play um i'm going to go through a couple of these quickly because we have other important things to get to in this chapter, but um, number three, you list gamesmanship, another big one, um, draws and seating. We talked a, a little bit about that a moment ago. Um, yeah. Spectators, cameras, you know, uh, environment and conditions. You talked about that, you know, windy, hot, cold, um, jet lagged, or I have to get ready to be up earlier than I want to be and then it rains and it's getting late into the day and now I've been up since whenever and yeah. I'm going on the court that <laughs> and waiting can be exhausting um you know court surface is number seven um number eight uh current fitness this one's really really mm -hmm. important. they're all important but this one is 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 again um really really resonated with me but so current fitness energy levels pain tolerance threshold um those are really important ones to address um because of the variety of feelings that uh go along with those um number nine is uh untrustworthy mechanics you know and number 10 is outcome anxieties. And that's one that we've talked about before numerous times, you know, the, instead of focusing on the outcome, you know, be in the present, but anyway, you go on to say any topics that cause the athlete stress should be discussed. Solutions to overcoming the athlete's pressure triggers should be put into place. And so that, that really encapsulates what, what you're talking about in this section, in this chapter, um, you know, with your list of 10 competitive pressure triggers, but then leaving it open-ended to say, once you have this conversation with your player, what's some, they might come up with something not on this list that you weren't thinking about at all because you're not them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, it does and open so, up communication, right? And that's, that transparency is what you want with an entourage, right? Of, parent, yes. coach, athlete, without transparency and without open communication like that, improvement really does stall pretty quick. 
Mm -hmm. So I think that's meaningful that everybody's open to communicate. Well, that's not just, yeah, not just about strokes, right? But about that's right. really what's causing these anxieties. Because if, it goes back to what you were saying, you know, if you're going to blame it on strokes or mechanics, that's very surface level, you know, or blaming, oh, the other person was cheating, oh, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But, but yeah, so mm. those definitely need to be discussed. And so that's the perfect segue into the next section um, that, and, and I love the title of this section, that uh, comfort is where dreams go to die. <laughs> Um, and so we get into the growth cycle of the athlete and, um, you talk about, uh, an archer's, uh, bullseye, yes. that, um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly visual and I'll, I like to draw, but uh, not that this is special, but, but even in my notes here, I have a little, uh, <laughs> oh, <very nice. laughs> do a little bullseye diagram, That's great. um, where, uh, you know, the growth cycle. So you have that outside black ring that is the comfort zone. And then you have the next ring in that's the blue ring and that's the fear zone. And then you, the next one is red and that's the mastery zone. And then right in the middle, the yellow is the management zone. And I just immediately, I said, that's why I got all excited and wanted to draw my little diagram and use my school supplies. <laughs> 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 but but you know the comfort zone is right there next to fear and so you might kind of put one foot in and and try a little bit but you're not completely committed that fear zone from the comfort zone idea is is just massive but then on the other side of the fear zone is mastery and so we we talk about able and willing, like, are you able, are you willing to go through those fears, identify and address those fears, not just to yourself, which is hard enough, but then with a parent and a coach to adults, um, that's hard, but then that mastery zone is there, you know, so it's like you, you get through the hardship and you get to the prize yeah. and then at the final level, now you're managing and that's when, you know, it's almost like if somebody's dieting, you know, you, you start and you say, I have a goal of losing uh, 20 pounds or whatever. And then it's like, well, are you willing to not eat ice cream at every night? <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. Whatever the case may be. And then, so you get through that fear of, again, making a change, a choice, if it's in your diet, your nutrition, and then, okay, you start to see results, you know, but then and there is another phase because you don't just, you can't just keep losing weight forever. If you're losing, you know, you're yeah. <laughs> so it gets yeah. to a point where it's a maintenance program. So you've gone through, I need to lose 20 pounds. I'm deciding to get outside my comfort zone, make the changes that I need to make to, to lose this weight. And then once I've done that, hopefully it's a life change. Otherwise you get that yo-yo <laughs> and so you've mastered it. And then you just maintain, then you get to live in that place where you wanted to lose 20 pounds. It was hard. It was scary. You made the changes, you got it. And yeah. now you maintain it. Um, so it's sort of, uh, that made sense to me, but I just love, like I said, you know, I'm so visual. So I, I, uh, again, I'm <laughs> that, that yeah. 
you know, you, you say top athletes have to manage the tools they've mastered. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about um, how you came to, to this conclusion. Well, all their tools are, you know, if you look at the tools of the trade, there's hardware and software and the hardware is their strokes and athleticism, right? So they need the full tool about the strokes if they're going to play college ball, you know, which means obviously they're, primary and secondary strokes so not just a forehand but six different forehands like short angles high and heavy slices so that's the idea about athletes have to realize that there's a little bit of truth to this 10,000 hour rule which is to get to be world class at something and if you're playing d1 college you're well you're pretty much close to world class right there um so to be a world class, it's twenty hours a week for ten years. Is the uh, is the average? It doesn't mean that it's always like that. Obviously, some kids take a lot more time. Some kids can do it in five thousand hours if they have better quality over quantity of training. Mm -hmm. So that's big. But once they do, um, you know, get through the uncomfortable part of this of, of the of the of the phases now they do have all their tools so now when they get into matches it's kind of fun because now they just have to manage what tools they're going to use on that day which i love that. that that's that's super fun when you can coach an athlete that has all their tools but it's pretty rare for, for a younger age mm -hmm. so athletes have to kind of realize and parents too though that you can't keep them in a tournament cycle while you're rerouting strokes or making changes because what happens when you reroute is let's say they have a certain level of a stroke once you start making changes now the the old motor programs die so they don't and have them anymore yeah. yeah yeah it gets worse before it gets better <laughs> it does right and then the new ones aren't there yet so if you put your child in, into a tournament three weeks into changing their strokes what they're going to say is well i know what you know coach jenny said but I'll start that tomorrow because I am not losing to Harold over there. And right. so they go back to their old mechanics that that's trustworthy, mm -hmm. even though it might not be in their best interest in the long run. And so they go back and uh, change is sometimes difficult mm -hmm. for, for most people. So that's the concept. If you are going to make some good changes, take them off the tournament trail a little bit, give them time to digest the, the changes give them time to do repetition and practice matches first. That's right. Before you put them back, you know, under stress when they're being judged, that kind of thing. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, working um, at a club and, and uh, our director was a, a world-class former tour player, you know, phenomenal. You know, I was, I learned so much from, from this individual, but there was one thing uh, before one of the bigger tournaments for Alabama or the Southern section, um, a decision was made to change a particular uh, kid who was going to be a pretty high seed, a talented young player, been struggling some with some backhand mechanics. And uh, this, this other coach, like two weeks before this tournament, um, 
changed him to a one-handed backhand. Wow. <laughs> and we're talking about a young, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're talking about a young player too. I think he was in the 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 twelves maybe at the time. But like I said, this was a big tournament. He's going to be seated. He's played most of these players before. You know, and so he goes out there and, and you know, I give him some some props for he starts the match with the new one handed backhand. And then I could just see it on his face. You know, I, I could uh, just, you know, and I'm going, oh, no, I see this thing spiraling and he, he loses to a player that he should not have lost to or well, anyway. <laughs> and what did he do in the middle of the match? He abandoned the one-handed backhand and went back to his two-handed backhand, which also wasn't working because now you're in that weird in-between spot of, I haven't mastered this new (laughs) stroke (laughs) and the old one that I was struggling with, even though that's more comfortable, that's what I'm used to because I've been doing it for all this time, Yeah, but it's not working either. And it was, it was heart-wrenching to watch this play out with this yes you know and and, (laughs) you know i think it's meaningful that parents to realize that often a high-ranked ex-tour player they have spent ten thousand hours a week developing their skills but those skills are very different than the skills required to teach the game Teaching the game is a different set of 10,000 hours. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's rare, but some can do it. Some have both. And there's some wonderful, great X players that are. You, just... Yeah, you, you know, you know, all these guys. And, and yeah, you know, you, you know, these folks that have been able to bridge that yeah. gap between. They can wear both hats. Yes. Between their mastery and their experience and what they yeah. see. But it goes back to something we've talked about in, in past chapters where you have to meet the player where they are. You know, you have True. to, you yeah. know, and so where this player was, was two weeks out from a tournament where he's going to be a high seed. He needs to do well. It's a qualifying event for the next event. And, you know, so so to be able to make meet the player where they are would have been a more positive outcome for that that. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and look, it's it's common out there, but it's poor, it's called poor periodization, which is knowing not just how to coach, but when to coach and when to change things. So parents, you should know that leading into a tournament, especially a big tournament, that's not the time to make dramatic changes, like changing a stroke mechanics or mm-hmm. adding a new fitness regiment the week before, because that just pretty much guarantees your child's going to be sore and can't move come Saturday. That's right. Um, yeah. So, so. It's, you'll see it. I mean, I, oh, the yeah. last time I did poor periodization, I, I took these guys at a national tournament. We went to this all you can eat Indian buffet at lunch. <laughs> and some of them have never eaten there before. <laughs> like one of those, And they all lost and it was my fault, but <laughs> nobody could move after lunch. But so yeah, don't tell anybody, but yeah. <laughs> it's just between us. No. Yeah. <laughs> you, you say uh, common issues occur when the athlete would rather remain moderately uncomfortable yet safe instead of dealing with the uncertainties that would make a real change in their life. 
I need to get, I, I had to sit back just now, you know, I just, I, I sat back and was just like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, I'm going to read it one more time and then we'll move on. But, um, <laughs> common issues occur when the athlete would rather remain moderately uncomfortable yet safe instead of dealing with the uncertainties that would make a real change in their life. Um, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you. But, and, but it, so it's our job as parents to teach a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset, right? That everything in your life and your skill sets can be improved if you're willing and open to, to improve. Mm -hmm. But some people don't have an, an open growth mindset. They have a fixed mindset. And so making those changes for those people could be a little bit difficult. So, so to finish yeah. out this section, and I know, I know our time is running short. I just looked up and I went, Oh my gosh. Uh, but <laughs> improving your athlete's performance starts by understanding the growth cycle. Once the pain of losing to an inferior opponent overrides the pain of change, the prognosis is good for quick improvement. And you say, you know, from your mentor, Vic Braden, who I also had the great pleasure of meeting many years ago. Um, one more time, uh, once the pain of losing to an inferior opponent overrides the pain of change, the prognosis is good for quick improvement. Um, so I know we're going to have to leave it there for, for today, but that's a, actually a really beautiful place to, to um, wrap this one up. We might have to do a part two because <laughs> there's <laughs> much more, much more to delve into within chapter eight. Uh, but um, anyway, le leaving, leaving it with that note um, from Vic Braden, uh, I think is actually a perfect way to go. Um, yes. So, so final thoughts, Frank, before we let you go, uh, I know you're about to jump back, back out on court. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I want to quickly thank you again for your time as always um, and um, sharing your wisdom um, and sharing your wisdom through the books. We're excited about uh, the new encyclopedia bundle mm -hmm. that, that is coming soon. Uh, so stay tuned on that. Um and you can find uh, Frank's other books on Amazon. Um, we hope you enjoy this. Uh, we're on YouTube, iTunes, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, thank you for joining us. And this this is Chapter Eight, Part Part One. <laughs> Frank, thank you so much. Any any final Thanks, thoughts? Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> no, I think we're we're good. I, I really enjoy this stuff, and I, I enjoy hearing the insights and the stories because you you bring them to life so that's beautiful oh thank you thank you thank you well uh to everyone out there again feel free to contact us um can reach out i'll put it in the comments um you can you can reach frank um who so graciously is open to you know say hey yeah reach out let's talk about yeah. it um so thank you for that openness as well and um We'll have to leave it there for today, folks. Uh, thank you for watching and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Signing out, chapter eight. <laughs> <laughs>